Righty. All that being said, um, I would like to welcome up Stefan Kinsella. Good morning, Stefan. How are you doing? Good morning. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Uh, just a little, some brief info about Stefan, an American intellectual property lawyer, author, and deontological anarcho-capitalist. I'd like to know more about that because I'm not quite sure what it means. But uh, his legal works have been published in the Oxford University Press, uh, Oceana, Mises Institute, etc. Uh, was recently on the Breed Love Show. And uh, my producer, Jacob, has said really great things about you, Stefan. I haven't had a chance to listen to that whole podcast, but uh, apparently it was pretty damn good. Yeah, we did part two yesterday, actually. It's not out yet, but yeah, we did part two. We'll we'll probably do many more parts. Right on. Um, And by the way, I've I've never referred to myself as a deontological (laughs) theorist. Someone else must have written that. Uh, What they mean by that, if you're curious, is um, um, there's like two main ways people try to argue for the, the policies that they prefer the laws uh, one is sort of what's called utilitarian or consequentialist like you just basically favor a law that gets the best results for the most people and the other is de- is called deontological which basically just means you you do it in accordance with some kind of principle like uh, you think it's just it's just wrong for people to commit murder so you, you're for a law against murder not because you think it generates the greatest good for everyone but because you think it's inherently immoral or wrong so those are the, that's what that word de- deontology means, which I did not select, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I'm looking at your, um, your Amazon author profile, and you appear to be a pretty prolific writer. Um, yeah, I've written a good deal. I've been an attorney since uh, 1992, patent attorney, and I've uh, written a good deal on law itself, like uh, writings for other lawyers. Most of that for profit. Well, some of it for profit. And then uh, as a libertarian and Austrian um, economics student, I've written a lot of legal theory and rights theory from that perspective, too, um, in in books and in uh, various journals. So are you a Bitcoiner? Absolutely. I got interested in Bitcoin from – oh, I was interested in it from 2011 or so, uh, and um, um, I thought it had promise. In fact, I thought it could be the ideal money because it doesn't have an intrinsic value. <laughs> in other words, it's the opposite of the gold bugs critique. Not that I think intrinsic value is an inherent, uh, a coherent comment, but it doesn't have a non-monetary use. Um, so I thought it could – because it's digital and because it's a fixed supply, I thought it could be the perfect money. But I, I, I thought that if it started gaining traction, that the state would just shut it down because they would see that it was a threat. And so I was wrong about the, the state's ability to, to sense the threat and to act quickly. So I made a bet with my friend Vijay Boyapati in 2012, early 2012. I think the price was like um, $6. And I said something like, I'll bet you $100, Vijay, that by one year from now, the price will be – 60 cents or less because I thought if it went up, the government would just shut it down. So my only criticism of Bitcoin was that the state would, you know, would, would kill it. And um, by the near the end of 2012, it was up to $30. So I realized I had lost the bet. So I offered to pay BJ $100. 
and he said, if you pay me three bitcoins, I'll I'll call us even, which was ninety dollars. So he was just trying to get me to figure out how to use Coinbase and buy bitcoins, which is what I did. So I started buying at the end of twenty twelve, um, because I lost a bet about it failing. That is awesome and hilarious, and yeah. I must say, a pretty boss move by BJ. <laughs> yeah, he is, and he's got those two bit, those three bitcoins that I paid him. So, uh, you know that that ninety dollars turned into whatever it will be in the future. Yeah, currently three Bitcoin. For those of you who don't know or aren't watching, it's a, it's worth about sixty thousand dollars. So I'd say VJ made a pretty good bet there. Yeah, very funny. Uh, you and I came from a very similar view on Bitcoin. I also thought that the government would just shut it down at some point. And uh, what was it that made you realize that that wasn't going to happen? I mean, was it the price? No. What was it specifically that made you realize? government wasn't going to shut it down well because it went from six dollars to 30 and then over the years it kept going up and up and up and the government was just slow to react and then i, I think i saw the uber you know the uber example where you don't ask um permission you ask forgiveness later and uh, something gets so entrenched that it's too late to stop it i still think it's possible and in fact i do think that this the fact that the state classifies bitcoin um as a commodity and as a good as property by the way all these bitcoiners that run around saying you can own a Bitcoin and Bitcoin's property, I think you should be careful what you wish for because by doing that, now it's subject to capital gains tax. And I think that is basically a quasi-outlawing of Bitcoin. I think that is hindering its 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 uh you know its adoption. So I think it's 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 struggling right now partly because of the of the capital gains problem. Um, that's just my own my own take on it. Um but I think that it's inevitable that we'll have a digital money that is decentralized and separated from the state, just like it was inevitable that we would finally have you know, email replacing physical letters and things like that and digital information replacing analog information. Um, and so – and I also – I don't know if I'm quite a Bitcoin maxi because I've been – I thought I was a Bitcoin maxi, but the more I listen to other maxis, they have a different definition of it than me. They seem to focus more on like the activism or your or where your focus is. For me, Bitcoin maximalism always meant. To me, it makes sense. There can only there only needs to be one money in the world, and so eventually we'll we'll move to a world with one money, just one. You, you don't need one money for encryption and one money for this and one money for that. It's just ridiculous. Money's purpose is to be the most commonly used medium of exchange and the most you know liquid asset. So I think we're going to converge onto one money eventually. Um, and so it's going to be a digital money. So it's going to be one of the of the twenty thousand cryptos out there. And I think Bitcoin is probably the one that it will be because it was the first and it's got the longest chain and all these other things. So to me, that's what Bitcoin maximalism means. But I get the impression that some of the other Bitcoin maxis mean something else by it. They mean something like that's where you put your attention and your focus on development. But I don't do any of that. I just hodl. <laughs> so I don't know what that means to put your focus on 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 only one of the many cryptos you know that's an that's an interesting point i suspect that if you asked a hundred bitcoin maxis what a bitcoin maxi is you might get a hundred different actual definitions that's interesting that you yeah um something i'm i'm curious about uh is if you study history you've seen that humans have always used different things as money and and almost always there's been competitive monies that humans have used so 
I'm curious about your views. What makes you think that we will converge on one? Well, because oh, so I'm an Austrian in the Misesian tradition, so not a Hayekian. Um, I think there's just been competition because money emerges out of a barter society, and there's many things that can be money. So it takes a, a while before the market uh, figures out um, uh, which one is the best one. And um, money only money's main function is to overcome two problems, which which beset. Um, humans living in a barter society. Number one is the, you know, the um, the problem of um, that you can't uh, you can't uh, find someone who wants to buy what you want to sell. Okay, so that's the standard barter problem. And the other problem is the inability to calculate profit and loss for competing projects in your mind, uh, in in sort of comparative terms. That is, you like if you want to, you have a certain amount of resources, you could like build a build a bridge, or you could build a, a, a you know, a tunnel or something like that, um, and you don't know which one to do. But if you can compare them in some kind of comparable units, like money units, then you can make the comparison and you can have rational economic calculation. This is all Ludwig on Mises and stuff like that. So when money emerges, it solves the problem of the double coincidence of wants problem of barter, and also it allows it, it allows rational economic calculation. Okay, so. That's what money's purpose is, but you only need one money for that, and you have to keep in mind that money is not itself wealth. Money is just uh, the, something that can be traded for things that have wealth. So that's why, for example, if we just double the supply of dollars overnight, we're not twice as rich because you're just changing the prices. But if you double the supply of cars or houses or food overnight, we are richer because those are real goods. And this is why Mises and Hoppe and Rothbard, these Austrian economists that I follow, um, they would say that money is a sui generis, which means a unique good. It's not like a consumer good and not like a capital good. Um, consumer goods and capital goods are two types of goods, but they're the good of the type where if you increase the supply, you make us wealthier because each unit of the supply is actually um, useful on its own. Um, now, each additional unit is worth less than the last one. That's what the law of marginal utility means. But still, each unit of a supply of a good is wealthy in its own right. So if you increase any supply of any good, you make us the human race or the possessor of the goods wealthier. But if you increase the supply of money, you don't, Okay, which is why I favor Bitcoin because it's a fixed supply. And you know you, you have a lot of people, look, a lot of Keynesians, a lot of uh, even a free banker type Austrians. Um, who believe that uh, the money supply needs to be so-called flexible. I think that's complete BS. I don't think the money supply needs to be flexible at all. I think a fixed, absolutely fixed money supply – in fact, with Bitcoin, the, the money supply is decreasing all the time right? because you always have loss. So if we get to 21 million Bitcoins, then if we, if we reach that peak in 108 mm -hmm. years or whenever – it's going to keep well, going it, down. It, every it year. may or may not. It may or may not be decreasing all the time because we have new supply. So the, the 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 amount of loss would have to exceed the amount of new supply coming into the system. Although it is pro Here's it is programmatically designed to to decrease the amount of new supply over time every four years. Yeah, I'm talking about after it's done when we reach the 21 millionth Bitcoin in 108 yes. years or whatever that is. Um, at that point in time, the money supply is fixed, but it might actually decrease because you'll have a little so-called friction, yes. and you might lose a Satoshi here and there. Um, now, maybe they'll be recovered someday when each Satoshi is worth a trillion dollars. I don't know. But the point is it's definitely not increasing, and I think that's a good thing. 
Um, so my view is that unlike the view of the free bankers and the fractional reservers and the fiat money types and the Keynesians, um, you simply just have a fixed money supply and everything else shifts around that. So if there's an increased demand for money, like people want to borrow more money, then the price of, the price of interest would go up. You know, So the price of money would change. I don't see a problem with that at all. Um, lots of the free bankers think that there's a psychological problem where people get used to a certain wage. And they have this psychological resistance to having their wages go down in nominal terms to adjust to the changes in demand. But I think that's just because people in today's world um, have a different conception of what money is. And I think in a, in a Bitcoin world, they would have a totally different view of time preference yeah. and, and of money. And they would understand that, hey, I'm getting paid a salary of 0.3 Bitcoins a year right now, and next year it's going to be 0.29 but the purchasing power of that is 10% greater, so what do I care? I mean, I don't, I don't think people exactly. are stupid. I don't think people are stupid. I think they would yeah, yeah. be Yeah, people fine can with figure that. it out. They, if you – okay, if you grew up, if there was an all, another planet where all they ever had was Bitcoin and, and you grew up in that system, that would – you know, it would just make complete sense to you. Yeah, there's, there's several really good articles like by Guido – I think by Guido Holzman on the ethics of money production and by uh, – there's a great article some of your audience might like. It's by the recently. You deceased. guys, I'm sorry. Did you guys hear that from Tomer? Yeah, I, I removed him. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll let him know. Oh, I thought he was playing video games. <laughs> sorry, Stefan. Please continue. <laughs> is, it, is this the effect I have on your audience? <laughs> you never know no. what you're going to get in here, man. This is like, uh, you know, you're rolling the dice when you come hey, into hey, one hey. of these rooms, man. Hey, I'm, I'm an anarchist, so it's okay with me. But, um, no, there's a good article. Some of your audience might not have heard. It's by Paul Cantor, C-A-N-T-O-R. He he died a year or two ago. He was an an old Austrian school um, uh, literary cultural critic, but he wrote a great article about. I think it's called. It's in the Review of Austrian Economics. It's called um, uh, Thomas Mann and Hyperinflation, and it talks about the cultural and the effects on the on the psyche of a nation when you have this inflation or hyperinflation. It just it really has a tremendous effects, and Guido Holzman talks about this, and I think some others, maybe VJ, maybe Sapadina Moose, both both good friends of mine, um, have written about this. So I think we really have to imagine a world of sound money, and it, it would change the character of the whole nation, I believe, or the whole people. Um, anyway, that's a tangent, but I went to it. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. I mean, I think that's right. Uh, Phil, good morning. I think you had a question maybe for Stefan. Hey, good morning, guys. Glad to uh, be here in chat. Stefan, good to see you again, man. So, hey, howdy, howdy. So, this is kind of a tangent here, but you're talking about how you know Bitcoin is in property and whatnot. As a uh, patent lawyer and dealing with intellectual property, what is your take on Bitcoin being free speech? Oh, yeah, I've talked about that before, too. Um, well, I mean, if you want to be precise, which is what I try to do all the time, um, nothing is property. So the word property should be used to refer to a relationship between an owner and a scarce resource. Okay, So if I own a car, people say that's my property, but the right way to say it is I have a property right in the car. Okay, so the car is not property. The car is a resource which I happen to have a property right in or I, I own. So then the question is, so what types of things can be owned and which types of things can you have property rights? And those are only scarce material 
resources in the world, which I call conflictable things. Now, information cannot be owned because information doesn't exist as a free form, as a freestanding, independently existing entity that that people can have a conflict over. Information is simply um, the impatterning of a substrate, like it, because you have to store information somewhere, either in your brain or on a cassette tape or on a CD or on the pages of a book. So it's always just the way an, an object is arranged or an underlying carrier or a medium or a substrate. And those things are always physical, and those are, so those are always owned by someone. So you can't have double ownership. So if you, if you say, I own the pattern of information, then you would have to own all those carriers that, that embody that information, which is what copyright and patent do. Okay, so this is the fundamental flaw of all these ideas. You simply cannot. Information is not an ownable type of thing. Information is the way it's stored, always stored on, on a substrate. So, for the same reason, Bitcoin, I believe, can be viewed as a ledger, which is just a, a, a set of information stored on a distributed set of of, uh, of carriers, like you know the, the tens of thousands of nodes and miners that have copies synced in parallel every 10 minutes around the world but all those are privately owned hardware memory devices which are just arranged in a certain way to have the similar information the similar um uh, you know the the blockchain stored on them and so those people own their computers the information on them is not ownable so bitcoin to me is just a representation of an entry on this ledger which is distributed so bitcoin cannot be owned um th th in, in, as a legal matter. Now, the way it's, the system is designed, you have practical possession of it because no one can, can change can, – can trans, transmit your bitcoins without knowing your, your key because of the way the system is designed. So it's, it's, it's actually in a way better than legal ownership because people can violate your – they can trespass against your private property rights. They can, they can sometimes get around your – the legal protections, but it's almost impossible with Bitcoin. The way it's better. When the, when the government at property, they're doing it because they have the kind of classical economics view that anything that's an economic good, that is something that you quote-unquote value, that you could quote-unquote sell for monetary dollars is a quote good, and therefore is a quote asset. Uh, the fucking tax law, right? So this is how this all starts. <laughs> so when Bitcoiners get so excited… You're cutting out just a little bit there, Stefan. Oh, am I? Sorry. Um, how about now? Better. I'm going to turn. All right. Right now? Yep. Okay. So I think that it's a mistake to ask to lobby for the government to recognize Bitcoin as property. What I do think that we, we should want is for the government to um, include Bitcoin in legal tender law so that it's not subject to capital gains tax. Love it. So, is it free speech? I just, oh yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So the free speech argument. Um. So as a libertarian, there's no right to free speech, uh, because you don't, you only have the right to engage in actions that don't trespass against other people. So on my own property, I have the right to free speech because I'm in my own property. I'm not invading anyone else's property. If I'm at, on your property, I have to follow your rules. So there's no absolute right to free speech. We come up with these fictions which are designed to limit the power of the state because the state is a criminal organization, and everything they do is, is, is a threat to us. 
So we come up with these fictions, these civil rights, which are not real rights like free speech because it's a convenient way to limit the power of the government. So I'm in favor of the First Amendment because it's at least an attempt to say, okay, we have this powerful central state which has the power to kill us but and to regulate our lives, but at least they can't they can't uh, pass a law that um, – that violates uh, the, the right to freedom of speech, freedom of belief, freedom of assembly, that kind of stuff, freedom of the press. Um, and so those those kind of artificial limitations or prophylactic measures can be useful to limit the power of the state as long as you don't delude yourself into thinking there's a right to free speech, which is everyone does, right? Because they'll say, oh, Twitter's violating your right to free speech because this, but they're not because they're used to the concept of free speech as a good value. But the whole principle of the First Amendment is to limit the power of the state. Um, and so the question is, would, could that apply to something like code or computer code or Bitcoin itself? There have been some cases where that, that argument has worked on occasion, but I think it's, a, it's increasingly a stretch because the more functional something is, then the, it's sort of like the, the distinction between copyright and patent law, like what types of works were covered by copyright what types of works are covered by patent? These are all artificial distinctions, but the statutory law makes a distinction. So if you come up with an artistic, expressive, creative, original work of art or a novel, that's copyright. If it's a functional machine or process or invention, that's patent law. Um, and so – and the things covered by copyright tend to have First Amendment implications. Now, what is Bitcoin? It is code, and some cases have said that um, – that the code behind software is speech because it's, it's, it's written down. That is why copyright – copyright used to, used to not apply to um, computer code because it was functional because if you think about it, software is just the software way of, of doing a machine because once you program a, a general purpose processor in a computer, which is a hardware device, which is not free speech, right? That's a device. You could design it to do something, or you could just write some code and put it into the processor, and then it makes it do the same thing. So functionally, it's just like a functional thing. That's why software is covered by patent and copyright now because of these, these legal decisions. Um, and so by the same token, I think you could make an argument that, um, that Bitcoin is protected by the First Amendment and free speech. But I think uh, my guess is it would fail because it's too functional. Because it, it's right. the government's going to they're going to classify it as a as a, as money. So, so they think in these in these <clears throat> in these terms with the, the statutory statutory law and regulations and government courts they they always try to classify things like um, is this money or is it speech? Is this property or is it uh, I don't know a, a security or, or whatever you know. They, they always try to classify things to fit them into these buckets that fit to these artificial distinctions that's, that are made by the, by the statutory law. So my guess is that the free speech arguments for the code underlying um, Bitcoin and the encryption related to it probably won't work, but I think they're worth trying. Right, and just like to add one more stretch, I, I, I kind of mad as Bitcoin – could be free speech in the way that you just have, I guess, the uh, like possessive ability of the information to move that transaction from there to here without any interference. And I think one of the stretching arguments might be like the inalienable right, right? And I, I would think that like at least in the Bill of Rights or the first 10 amendments or whatever, like free speech might be one of those inalienable rights. No, I don't think 
you could use that in like an argument in the court of law or anything. But um, I don't know. I, I just kind of feel like that's kind of in line with, you know, Rothbard's ethics of um, li- liberty and everything and how that all kind of works out. Have you thought about that at all? Well, I mean, so there's a legal point of view and there's there's a libertarian point of view. From the legal point of view, um, some arguments just won't work. I mean you could argue, for example, that conscription into war violates the First Amendment because once you become a soldier, you can't say certain things, right? You're under the command of your of, – of, of, the, of the military. So you could say, well, if you conscript me, that limits the speech I would have. So the First Amendment bars conscription, but that's obviously not going to fly. The government would just disregard that kind of argument, just like they, they, they throw out income tax protester arguments that, oh, there's no law saying I have to pay income tax. Now, from a libertarian point of view, I think rights are unitary and holistic, and they all connect to each other, and ultimately they're all about property rights. So for example, if you tax someone, technically speaking, the, the, the problem with that is that it's, it's, it's a threat. So the government is basically coercing you. They're saying we are threatening to put you in prison if you don't hand over some of your money. So the, the crime there is an, is an assault. Assault is a type of a threat to harm someone. That's what that's what that is. Now you could also call it stealing. You say, "Well, they're stealing my money." I mean, they're not technically stealing your money because they're not they're not actually coming to you and taking it from you. They're just coercing you. It's a, it's an aggression either way. And you could also call it, "Oh, they're stealing my time because you know if if they tax me at forty percent, then that's forty percent of my life that's being spent." So I'm like, like you could say, I'm like a slave. You can make all these metaphors to explain. The bad consequences of immoral actions, but ultimately it's one thing or the other, right? So, with Bitcoin, you yeah, you can say that if, if the government doesn't, um, if the government regulates and suppresses and fines and penalizes and outlaws Bitcoin or anything like that, you could call it a type of violation of your free speech rights because that's one consequence. Um, but you could also just say it's just it's just naked aggression because the government is threatening me with. With prison, if I don't comply with these laws, so there's lots of ways to characterize the complicated ways the state tries to interfere with our with our lives and our liberty and our property. Um, now, I, I don't really think that the primary function of Bitcoin use by us is to express ourselves. Although the more resources and wealth that you have, the more ability you have to express yourself like you, you know you can have you basically have fuck you money if you're a billionaire right so you can say whatever the hell you want so in a sense there's a connection so there's all there's always always these connections you can make but to, to my yeah. mind yeah go ahead sorry oh i'm, I'm sorry i just had a random thought pop in my head that that is unless you live in china if you're a billionaire in china you can't say whatever you want but that's no china. but i but i would imagine that the more wealth and power you have the more ability you have to express yourself like you have a little bit more insulation from uh, from whatever system you're in unless you're in china true but <laughs> even, even there yeah. i imagine it's, it's probably better to be very wealthy as opposed to poor unless fair. unless it makes yeah, you a target that's yeah, fair unless it makes yeah, you a target fair. but yeah but yeah yeah i'm no fan i, I want uh, I, I wanted to ask you about something um and i'm going to paraphrase what i think you said correct me if i'm inc- if i'm wrong but Something along the lines of socialism is institutionalized violence. Correct. Uh, well, that, that's that's not exactly right, but that's close. Um, so the classical understanding of socialism is is this the um, the centralized 
control of the means of production. So you could have some socialists or communists who say, oh, you know, all the industry should be owned by the central collective, by the state. But you know, it's okay if you if it's okay if you own your your clothes, I guess, if you're a consumer. So they try to distinguish consumer goods from from the capital goods, from the producer goods. Um, but Hans Hermann Hoppe, who I think is like basically our greatest living economic and political thinker. Because um, he's Austrian, Rothbardian, and libertarian, and anarchist, all these things. Um, he argues for like what what he call what I call an essentialist definition of capitalism and socialism. So he kind of tries to get to the essence of what's the root difference. Because you know, there's really no inherent natural difference between a consumer and a producer good. Because Austrians believe in subjective, the subjective view of economics, which is that uh, subjective the, the view of the subjective view of value. Value is not an intrinsic quality inherent in anything. Value is always subjective. It's, it, it, value is imparted upon things by the way humans act upon them, right? And by the same token, no good is either a capital good or a consumer good. It depends upon how the user is viewing it. You know, I might view my um, my coffee table as a consumer good because I like to use it and it's 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 uh, it's beautiful. Or I might use it as a workstation table, so maybe it's a capital good. So, but it depends upon that. So the point is, there's no inherent distinction between capital and consumer goods. So the classical definition of socialism doesn't make any sense because it says, you know, socialism is a system where the where the producers' goods are all all, all centralized. But the, instead, Hoppe defines socialism as the institutionalized aggression against not violence, because violence can be neutral. Violence can be good or bad. Force can be good or bad. Even coercion can be good or bad, but aggression is, is the bad type of violence. Aggression means the initiated, unjustified use of violence against someone. So he defines socialism as a system where there's institutionalized aggression against private property rights, and capitalism in idealized terms is the uh, a system where there's institutionalized respect for private property rights. Now, the reason the word institutional is in there is just to distinguish it from private crime. So – you can have – even if you have capitalist system where there's no socialism, where there's no, there's no institutional violence against private property. In other words, there's no, there's no socialist laws. You know, there's no taxation. There's no eminent domain. There's no conscription. There's no drug war. Um, you can still have an occasional act of private crime, and you can view those guys as little private socialists. You know? so, every, so basically everything that's criminal in the world is socialistic. It's just that if it's institutional, it's even worse. Which is why we, we sort of focus on the state as the greatest enemy, even though private criminals are also um, something to be worried about. But those can be usually handled <clears throat> with technical means, uh, but the state is a, is a widespread social problem. Wow. Um, we're, we're getting up against the end of the show. I really wish we had more time because uh, you have some very interesting views and um, – just want to appreciate or, or just say i appreciate you coming and hanging out with us maybe we could do it again sometime um i i uh, wish we had shifted to you sooner it's really really cool happy to do uh, it. let's do this does anybody have any pressing questions for stefan and uh we can do that and then um let stefan get a couple of minutes to make some closing comments uh closing thoughts you can plug anything you like stefan if you have a new book or something like that you want people to know about um, I've been working. I've been working on a book for 15 years, but it'll probably come out next year. It's called "Law in a Libertarian World," which is basically um, a distillation of all these ideas 
uh, it'll be uh, it's on my website right now online already. Um, StephanKinsella.com. Cool. Any questions for Stefan? All right. Um, I'm sure there are, but everybody knows at this point we're at the end of the show. <laughs> I have more questions too, but hey, uh, hopefully Stephen, we can get. Is it is it Stefan or Stefan? Stefan, like think of the word Stephanie Stephan. or the name Stephanie, but just take the e off. <laughs> All right, then. Well, really appreciate you hanging out with us today. It's been a fascinating discussion. I'm sure there's a lot uh, more deeper things we can go into uh, just based upon this brief time we've had you here today. So thanks for hanging out. Thanks, man. All right, guys, then. That's a wrap. You have been listening to Cafe Bitcoin. We do this every single day, Monday through Friday. We start at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern. We roll for two hours, talk about all things Bitcoin. Great place for your morning news. Preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in Bitcoin to just chill and talk about what's going on. This is also a podcast. It's up on Fountain, Spotify, Apple, everywhere you get your podcasts. You can throw me a follow, Swan Bitcoin, to be notified of when those drop. Thanks to Swan Bitcoin, the sponsor of this show, my crew, Aunt Shane, Sats for Life, producer Jacob, I'm your host, Alex Danzig. I work with Swan and Bitcoin. If you want to know more about Swan, shoot me a DM. You can also shoot Terrence a DM, who's also up here on the stage. Thanks again to all the speakers who hang out here on the regular. Uh, thanks to Stefan for uh, chilling with us today. Appreciate you guys, and I admire you for what you do. By taking your time to uh, teach people about this bright orange future, this is what we call getting on the mission around here. I encourage people to do it. Why? Well, I personally believe that Bitcoin is the peaceful path forward for humanity. Like if we don't do this thing, the potential for the dark roads are not good, man. Not look forward to those dark roads. Don't want to go down there. So instead, let's just switch monopoly boards, guys. Take your money out of the monopoly board that these knuckleheads want you in. Put it in Bitcoin. Let's create a circular economy. It's going to be awesome. All right. Uh, everybody, love all you guys. Go out there. Have a great day today. And...